You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 61. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, scientist by day, writer by night. Every week, I bring you an installment of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also keep you up to date on my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to today's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 17 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, you should go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. When you're caught up, continue on to this week's spoiler-filled story recap. When we last left our heroes, Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf were on their way to Lightbringer headquarters. Kate and David were transporting the young noblewoman, Sethi Hinlasos. Sethi was mutated by exposure to the mysterious Talvari Rift and has become an esper, a person with the psychic gift of precognition. Now Sethi is terrorized by uncontrollable visions of the future, which seem to show her the end of the world. To make matters worse, Sefi's exposure to the rift has left her playing host to five magical symbionts, who are now feeding on her life force in order to survive. Sefi needs to get back to the Lightbringers so they can take her back to the rift, where she can return the symbionts to their proper home. But word has gotten out about Sefi and her friend's little joyride to the rift. Malcolm Ardvalos, the prince of the Vampire Crime Syndicate, is hoping to capture the rift's power for himself, he has ordered his subordinates to capture Sethi, so they can figure out what the Rift's power has done to her. Kate and David evaded the vampire's first agent, a skimmer that tailed them from the hedonist temple where they picked up Sethi earlier in the night. But as they were passing through their home precinct, the detectives received an emergency call from the dispatcher. An attempted rape was in progress just a few blocks south of them. Kate and David moved to intercept, pursuing the woman and her assailant into a narrow tunnel in one of Metamore's enormous towers. They caught the attacker, who gave up without a fight, and David went up a stairwell in pursuit of the woman, to bring her back and have her give her statement about the attack. While she was waiting, Kate was joined by another police officer, a patrol services corporal named Miles. Soon after that, a large shipping truck emerged from deeper inside the tower and started honking at the two police, trying to get them to move their skimmers out of the tunnel. Corporal Miles refused to budge until they had the statement from the witness, leaving Kate and Sethi stuck in between the truck on one side and Corporal Miles's police cruiser on the other. Moments later, Kate heard David shout her name, and the door to the stairwell burst open, spilling a headless body and a head with a bestial, predatory face. Moments later, both the head and the body crumbled to dust. Kate knew immediately what this meant. David had been ambushed by vampires, and with their skimmer boxed in, Kate and Sefi have nowhere to run. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester. 
Chapter 17 Continued David slid down the banister a moment later, his duster billowing behind him. He had his wooden sickle in one hand, and his aura was pungent with the scent of musk and spices, the biomancer's equivalent of a smoking gun barrel. Cover, he said. Kate ran back to the skimmer, slid over the hood, and crouched on the far side of the engine block. David was already back in the middle of the tunnel, as two more vamps tried to tag him. A moment later, five more vampires disgorged from the back of the shipping truck, armed with chains, nets, and clubs, but no guns. They want us alive, Kate realized, and the thought gave her no comfort. She had seen what the syndicate did to their prisoners. She drew her sidearm and took aim at the oncoming vamps. The sound of a pistol's slide action came from a meter behind her left ear. Drop it, detective. Kate looked back in disbelief as Corporal Miles pointed his gun at her head. She opened her mouth, but no sound came out. She looked at his glassy-eyed stare, at the vampires who were even now running toward them, at David. Drop the gun, Miles said again. The utter lack of expression in his eyes and voice was more frightening than anger would have been. Very slowly, Kate lowered the gun. David took in the situation with Kate and Miles in a single bird-like dart of his head, then turned his attention back to their assailants. He barked a word in Elvish and threw a handful of seeds from a reagent pouch. The seeds sprouted into long, grasping vines that wrapped themselves around the onrushing vamps. The spell grabbed two of them around the ankles and sent them sprawling, while a third was struck in the torso and ripped the vine off himself before it could get a good grip. A fourth was struck in the face and faltered in his charge, clawing and snarling as the vines wrapped themselves around his neck. The one attacker who made it through in the first wave joined the other two already tangling with David, eyes gleaming yellow-green in the dim light of the tunnel. They hissed and growled as their long claws reached out for her partner's flesh. Another wave of five more vampires closed in fast behind them. David moved with sudden quickness and impossible grace, his duster swirling around him as he danced between the vampire's blows. Their claws scraped ineffectually against the enchanted leather, not even leaving a scratch. He swung his little sickle in an arc in front of him, and a scythe of emerald green light cut through three of the vamps. The wave of life-aspected mana was anathema to the undead, and their bodies crumbled to dust as it passed through their withered hearts. The surviving vamps went after David from all sides, circling him like wolves around an elk, striking wherever his back was turned. He remained uncannily aware of their attacks, and dodged them with apparent ease, but they kept him from focusing his attention long enough to cast another spell. They danced that way for what felt like a small eternity, until one vamp overextended himself going for the elf's legs. David somersaulted over him and out of the circle. He leapt under the cruiser's hood, then onto the roof, then turned and swung his sickle at them again. The life mana lashed out and struck all three of the vamps in a diagonal slice. It disintegrated the legs of the first vamp and the head of the third. The one in the middle was split in half, from hip to shoulder, and fell in two pieces on the ground. All of them burned and crumbled into dust, screaming as death reclaimed them. 
David turned his dark, wrathful gaze on Corporal Miles. Let her go, he commanded. Then a mass of oily black ectoplasm flew past Kate's shoulder and wrapped itself around David's body. David! Kate cried. She could smell the awful, acrid stench of death mana in the spell. The elf grunted in pain as the black spell wrapped around him, sapping both his strength and the life mana his magic depended on. He tumbled off the top of the skimmer, barely managing to roll with the fall. The death spell oozed around him, creeping blindly toward his mouth and eyes, where it would seek to enter him and steal his life force. He rolled on the concrete and clutched at the oily mass, gasping out a counterspell, but the freezing cold and withering pain of the spell's touch would make it hard to summon up enough will to stop it. The death spell reached his neck, and David shut his mouth tight, unable to risk speaking any more of the counterspell, lest the blackness find its way inside him. Kate looked desperately between the gun in Corporal Miles' hands and the spell that threatened to consume her partner. She knew an air spell that would disrupt the attack, probably long enough for David to finish the counterspell. Miles would put a hole in her head about two seconds after she cast it, but at least her partner would live. Maybe he could even get Sefi and her passengers to safety. Despite her occasional recklessness, Kate had no desire to die. Even so, weighing her own life against the life of her partner, a young elf who had centuries of good years ahead of him, and an innocent woman and five hapless spirits, there really was no comparison. She began forming the spell in her mind. Hold. The voice was a high male tenor, refined in its diction and lazily arrogant in its cadence. And in that single word, the death spell around David paused in its advance. Kate heard the click, clack, click of hard-soled shoes coming down the tunnel from the entrance behind her. Corporal Miles held his attention on Kate, but a sudden light came into his face, like a dog who hears his owner's voice. The figure who stepped into view was tall and rangy, a scarecrow in a pinstripe suit with white spats and black leather shoes. His face was a narrow, chiseled wedge with deep-set eyes, a long nose, sharp cheekbones, and a jutting chin. He wore dark eyeliner and mascara and a deep violet lipstick, which contrasted sharply with the porcelain white of his vampire skin. His pale blonde hair formed a large and elaborate mohawk that was utterly at odds with his choice of clothing. He carried a thin cane of polished ebony, its silver pommel shaped like a dragon's claw. The fingers of the claw wrapped around a large orb of black stone. Jet, perhaps, or obsidian. The vamp's own fingers caressed the stone as he approached, and Kate could feel the dark power emanating from it, guiding the death spell. Well, well, well. The vamp looked at David, lying on the concrete wrapped in the death spell, and then at Kate, kneeling under the nose of Corporal Miles's gun. Isn't this a pretty little picture? Two brave detectives, each ready to die for their partner. My heart swells with the sheer pathos of it. He turned his eyes on the patrol cop and smiled, a ghastly expression that showed far too many teeth. Well done, pet. 
you shall be rewarded for your faithfulness. Thank you, Master, Corporal Miles said. Kate's heart sank. A thrall in the police force? And practically next door to me, too. She had known, on some level, that the vamps must have agents in the law enforcement community, but she had never been confronted with the reality of it until now. How many others do they have? How many cops are just waiting for the command to betray us? She searched her memory, looking for anything she might have seen or heard about this vampire and his abilities. Death magic user, snappy dresser, bad taste in hairstyles. She recalled Morgan's debriefing three years ago, right after her sire had been dusted. Newly freed from the psychic compulsions Braddock had forced on her, Morgan had told them everything she remembered about the syndicate and the vampires working in it. She had mentioned an enforcer who was coming up through the ranks, one who might replace Braddock as Malcolm's top hatchet man. Fisher. She watched him closely as she spoke the name. The vampire's eyes lit up in surprised pleasure. My reputation precedes me. How delightful. He turned to face her then, smiling with sardonic good cheer. Now then, let's to business, shall we? Detective Catane, you have something my master wants. You're going to give it to me, and in exchange I shall spare the life of your partner. He looked over his shoulder at David. Detective Silverleaf, you are going to be a good boy and keep your life manner to yourself. In exchange... Corporal Miles will leave Miss Katane's skull blissfully intact. He simpered at Kate. Understand that this is in no way a negotiation. As charming as your company might be, I do not make deals with livestock. You shall do what I say when I say it, or I shall cull you both from the herd immediately. This is your one and only warning. Do you understand? Wordlessly, Kate nodded. Good. The vampires that David had ensnared earlier had pulled themselves free from the vines, and now two of them came up behind Kate. They cuffed her hands behind her back and took her sidearm and her arthana, though they missed the holdout pistol and her two boot knives. No one bothered with her reagent pouches. Illusion magic wasn't very useful once your enemies knew you were using it. David, by contrast, was relieved of his sickle, his gun, two long hunting knives, and all of the reagents that filled the countless small pockets of his duster. They cut a strip of cloth from the bottom of his shirt and gagged him with it for good measure. They left his necklace of animal bones untouched, but only because it burned the hands of the vamp who touched it. Fisher looked over the two bound detectives and nodded approvingly. Right then. Gesturing with his cane, he called the death spell off of David, drawing the oily black mass back into the orb at the top. Then he turned his back on them, opened the back door of David's cruiser, and beckoned to Sephi with his cane. Lady Sephira, step out of the skimmer, please. Sephi emerged, slowly, wide-eyed, her fiber-optic hair reaching out to Fisher and then flinching away. Fisher looked her up and down, a ghastly grin spreading across his face. My, my, aren't you a hungry little thing? You've got more mana inside you than the elf does, and you're burning through it ten times as fast. 
he placed the black orb of his cane under her jaw and raised it, forcing her to tilt her face upward toward his. What on earth could you be hiding that would need so much power? Kate smiled bitterly. Go ahead, have a taste, she thought, and won't that be a lovely surprise for you? Vampires were normally immune to psychic intrusion, since their minds hung suspended between life and death. Once they began feeding, though, it opened a telepathic bond between them and their victims. Kate knew of telepaths who had exploited that bond to get inside a vampire's mind, crushing its will and planting compulsions that the vampire was powerless to resist. She could imagine Fisher screaming as Sephira force-fed him with the apocalyptic visions that haunted her. But Fisher just looked at her for a time, then sighed dramatically and stepped away. Alas, little dove, you are not mine to taste. The master has other plans for you. He gestured with the cane, as if he were stabbing into something and then ripping it loose. Sephi shuddered and gasped as a glowing wisp of energy tore itself from her throat and flew into the black orb. The girl crumpled to the ground like a marionette with its strings cut. Sephi! Kate made to run for the girl, but two vamps grabbed her and held her back. Oh, she'll be fine, I assure you, Fisher drawled, as one of his lackeys picked up the unconscious girl and carried her back to his skimmer. Or at least that won't be what kills her. What the master does with her is his own business. Kate fought to pull herself free, but Fisher's thugs held her fast in an iron grip. She snarled and snapped her teeth at him, her rage overwhelming her powers of speech. Temper, temper, Fisher chided. He patted her cheek roughly, then grabbed her chin and forced her to look him straight in the eyes. I think you need to calm down, detective. Calm down and do as you're told. Kate knew about the dangers of a vampire's domination gaze, but this was the first time she'd been on the receiving end of it. She could feel the pressure on her psyche, the magic crawling across her mind like a host of sharp-legged insects looking for entry. She fought back against the intrusion, despite knowing it was hopeless, knowing that any second now Fisher would find the weak spots in her aura and break through, forcing his will upon her. And then it was gone, washed away like a swarm of crabs dragged out to sea. She looked back into his eyes, just dark empty pools now, without power to influence or control, and then she spat in them. Fuck you! Fisher froze for an instant, then took a step back. He pulled out a handkerchief and wiped his eyes meticulously. I see. You're one of those people. How irritating. The vamp holding Kate's right arm growled. What do you want us to do with her, boss? An excellent question, Fisher said. An officer in her position would make an excellent thrall, but she's immune. He wrapped David's arm with the tip of his cane. Just like our elven friend here. Never heard of a human who is immune, the other vamp said. Obviously, she's not completely human. Or else she's some kind of mutation, like the Spookies. There aren't many like her running around. 
just enough to be annoying. He gave her an appraising look, then nodded once. Right. Throw her in the hole with the elf. What? Kate looked over at David, who was watching the entire scene with dark, unreadable eyes. You said you'd spare his life. Oh, I won't be killing either of you, Miss Katane, Fisher said, smiling that nightmare grin again. The hunters will take care of that. Toodaloo. He saluted them with the tip of his cane, then strolled back up the tunnel and into the night. One of the vamps pulled out a black cloth bag and stuck it over David's head, shrouding him. A moment later, another one did the same to Kate. She wanted to fight, to scream, to try to run, to tear these bastards limb from limb, but she knew a losing proposition when she saw it. Hold on. Play for time. Wait for your moment. Only she wasn't sure that her moment was going to come. The vampires muscled them into the back of a skimmer, shoving and yanking until all of their limbs were inside. Then a series of jostling, vaguely stomach-churning sensations as the skimmer went off-road and dropped over the edge to street level. A few more minutes of acceleration, braking, and turning, and then the hatch opened and they were being dragged out again. Someone picked her up, slung her over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes, and carried her inside a building. The air inside was warm, humid, and stank with the smells of rotten meat, ammonia, and something worse than either. The vamp walked over broken rubble, gravel, and soft mud, his footsteps echoing off distant concrete walls. A second set of footsteps told Kate that David was being carried close behind her. She didn't know how far they went inside that stinking, awful cave. After a while, she started counting seconds in her head. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. She had reached one hundred and eighty-seven before the vamp unslung her from his shoulder, raised her over his head, and tossed her forward into empty space. She fell. And that's the end of chapter 17. Where are Kate and David? What dangers await them in the darkness? And how will they escape to rescue Sefi? The story continues next week. Federico Cini said, Writing is like sculpting words out of a block of imagination. Sentences chisel the story, then characters make it their own. So, let's see what I've chipped off the old block this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,534 words this week, over the course of 7.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 605 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script... I have gone 39 days without breaking my chain. I continued to make good progress this week on The Lost and the Least. I'm now in the middle of chapter 26, and the manuscript has just passed 89,000 words. 
This week was a great reminder for me of why I use Scrivener for writing novels. I did a major rearrangement of seven scenes involving four different viewpoint characters, because I realized that the order in which I had written the scenes did not match the order in which events had actually happened. Sometimes that doesn't matter much, but when the characters from one scene are showing up in another, it's important to get the timing right so you don't confuse your readers. If I were still writing in a word processor, it would have been a pain in the butt to rearrange these sections. Fortunately, with Scrivener, all I had to do is drag the sections around, figure out what the right order should be, and then renumber the chapter headings. So if you're thinking of writing a novel, I definitely recommend giving Scrivener a try. It's a bargain as software goes, and I've never found a better tool for facilitating the writing process. You can find it at literatureandlatte.com. And now, the feedback. Sarah Testarossa writes, I want to punch Zeke in his smug, creepy face. You know you've written a hateable character when listeners slash readers want to inflict violence on said character. On another note, yay representing another type of theriomorph. I'm glad the Baron can see skill and talent above heritage and appearance. Agreed. Baron Kapler was an interesting character for me to write, because he plays against type in a number of ways. While he represents a part of the political spectrum that I sharply disagree with, he is a very intelligent man who has little patience for nonsense. You can see his brains on display not just in his hiring excellent talents, like Dr. Ashland, but also in little things, like the way he negated Morgan's domination gaze during their meeting. Unlike most characters who are known for being intelligent, however, Kapler is built like a bear, big and solid and imposing, not slender and bookish. He also rejects a lot of the affectations of the nobility. You'll notice that unlike many other highborn characters in this novel, he doesn't speak with a noble accent, and he treats the political game like the cold, calculating thing it is. Where Count Halloway is showy, long-winded, and full of himself, Kapler is ruthlessly direct, blunt, and pragmatic. I found that I enjoyed writing him. I hope I get the chance to do it again someday, in a way that makes sense for the story. Sarah continues, I reread Make Believe, the Artax story by Brian Watson that I first heard on the original Metamore City podcast, and it was neat to see Nocturna's Lilies mentioned there, as well as Kate not wanting to go anywhere near the rift zone. Had you already started writing Things Unseen at that point? Yes, I started writing Things Unseen in 2009. In fact, Brian was there with me at Balticon 42, where I read the first half of the prologue just a day or two after writing it. I involved Brian a lot in the early story planning for Metamore City, and I believe he was the first person with whom I shared my plans for how Metamore City will end. Anyway, once Brian knew what I had planned for the rift, he started incorporating elements of it into make-believe. He's the one who first came up with the idea of the Nocturna's lilies and their use as a communications net, which turned out to be a crucial plot element as I continued writing the novel over the next four years. Thanks for the question. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I just listened to the latest episode of Things Unseen. Thoroughly enjoyable, um, although I kind of sort of want to punch Miles in the face. Wait, didn't I just say that about a character last chapter? I think I did. 
Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not typically a violent person, just so people know, but the fact that characters are eliciting violent thoughts from me means that you're doing a good job, Chris, at making some of them dislikable. Anyway, though, I actually, when the call went off over the police radio comm stuff, I had a feeling that that was a setup by Malcolm and his folks. I feel like we'll probably find out next chapter, or next half of the chapter, but that was awfully convenient, and the fact that the perp is just being kind of silent instead of the usual, oh, I didn't do anything, he's blah, 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 blah. So either he's a hardened criminal who knows the system and is trying to work the system, and or maybe he was basically put up to it by Malcolm and Co. so that they could have a diversion. I mean, it makes the most logical sense, otherwise it's awfully coincidental. But then again, on the streets, stuff like that happens all the time. That's true. And that's why Kate and David fell for it. Once they lost the tail that the syndicate had put on them, the only way they were going to get caught was if they were led into a trap. And since Kate and David are both smart, experienced cops, the only plausible way to fool them was to give them an emergency to respond to, one that they could not ignore and could not leave for another officer to deal with. Once they had responded, it was just a matter of containing them until the vamps could close in from all sides. Steffi sounds really adorable and sad and kind of pathetic right now. I feel so bad for her. Well, she and all of the others in her consciousness. And when she had said, like, I died here, I knew immediately that she was talking about Bernard Travers. I get Kate's not associating places. I'm actually pretty directionally challenged myself and don't necessarily make certain associations, even though I don't live in a layer cake world. But yeah, the being right above Hunter's Hollow and that being where Bernard Travers died, that makes a lot of sense that there would be kind of a resonance there. Anyway, I'm definitely glad that David's okay and that he dusted one of the vamps. That's what it sounds like anyway, that that one's dead now. Although, technically, what the phrase dusted is literally when you kill them so that they turn to dust, yeah? Or permanently kill them. Yes, when a vampire is permanently destroyed, its body crumbles into dust hence the term dusted. This is a side effect of the core of death-aspected mana that's locked inside each of their bodies. Once the magic reanimating them is disrupted, they pay back entropy at an accelerated rate. It's different from when a vampire changes to mist form, which is a regenerative state that they can use to escape further harm. Dusting happens when they experience a kind of damage that mist form can't save them from, such as sunlight or the life-aspected mana that David uses in combat with them. So yeah, all the rest of the chapter. Anyway, that's it for now. Um, hopefully this whole message came through. Uh, take care. Bye. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715 3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Laster. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To help me keep making this show and receive bonus content, sign up for a monthly pledge on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And if you like the show, leave me a review on iTunes or review my books on Amazon. It makes a big difference. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side.
This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.